just want to come on your side. Thank you, Pastor Mark. A few weeks ago, we were planning deacon ordination time, and um, Troy came up to me and he said, hey, maybe you or Ken could uh, do the sermon that day because you're former deacons. And I gave some righteous and holy sounding thing like, um, yeah, we better talk with, with Ken because I wouldn't want to steal that away from him. Secretly, I was thinking, how can I get him out of the picture? But it all... <laughs> Look, John 17, and I knew that was the passage. Uh, this is one of my favorite, favorite passages of the Bible. And it's, I don't know if it's because of that deep and that intimate conversation that Jesus was having with his father, or maybe the deep and intimate love that he has for his disciples and that prayer that he was making for us. Um, maybe it was because of his concern and his his deep love for unity in the church and beyond. So in light of all those things, I was excited to say yes. And I wanna look deeper into these passages this morning and how we can discover more about what Jesus was praying and why possibly. I'm gonna look at four main points today, the importance of unity, distractors to unity, the model for unity, and then a good example of unity. And finally, number four, the purpose of unity. So we'll start right off with the importance of unity. And the question is easily answered, why do you think Jesus was praying for unity? And the easy is, we need it. We need it now more than ever, but even then, He's in a transition of the high priestly prayer where he prayed for his disciples specifically and for their purity, and now he starts to pray for unity that they may be one as we are. Now, I can't know or tell you exactly why or what Jesus was thinking, what was on his mind when he was praying this prayer to the Father. He, he could have been thinking about his disciples and their you know, past antics of arguing and infighting, like who'd be the, who'd be the best, who would sit in the right place, uh, who would go first, all those kind of questions. He could have anticipated what would happen after I'm arrested and after the crucifixion, what's going to happen to these guys? Or maybe thinking about this is the fledgling church, and that's what the Father has entrusted to take the gospel to all the world. I think it's probably all three were on his mind. And, you know, he saw their infighting earlier, and so he sat down with a towel and washed their feet and taught them about humility. He knew Judas would betray him, so he sat down and talked about serving one another and respecting the other more important than yourself. He predicted the denial of Peter. And so he taught them and showed them later about restoration and about restoring someone who is wayward. And he, of course, knew he was sending them into the world, a place where Jew and Gentile would have to come together in unity to get the job done. Another good question you may ask is, well, who was the recipient of the audience of this prayer? And we've already mentioned that once. He did pray for the for the for those disciples at first, and then he transitions right off the bat. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. He is praying 
for us today that believe in Jesus Christ, those who profess faith in Christ and know him as their Lord and Savior, and all that would come after us as well. So that's who the prayer was intended for. And this is it's great news, and there's also a slight bit of a warning that we need to, to, to look at right here. He is praying for us because we need it. Um, he knew we would face persecution in this world. He promised it. He knew that Satan would do everything in his power to attack the unity of these men and the unity of the church and the churches to come. Now, I, I love unity. I love the theme of unity. I love being in a unified place. Um, and the question now is, is our church really unified locally? Or is the global church, the church universal, is it unified? Now, some say in Christianity you can have unity because there's, I don't know who counted them, they said 35,000 denominations. I knew there was a lot, but the point isn't the exact number, but the point is that there are distractions and things that have broken apart some apparent unity. And so let's look at the distractors to unity. I'm gonna focus on a couple, and then I think I wanna add one more in there that combines these two distractors. And the first one is letting our personal convictions outweigh clear biblical commands or the dictates of scripture. Letting our personal convictions outweigh what what God has commanded us through his word. Now, I want to caveat this. I have strong convictions. You can ask any of the elders, they'll attest to that. And we all do. But it's our point to remind each other in elder meetings or wherever that we need to make sure what our convictions are based on the word of God or just, just take them for what they are as their opinions and convictions. Now, there's nothing wrong with convictions. But we need to take it to the Lord and see the final arbitrator Last week in, in uh, Pastor Choi's sermon, John 17, 17 is, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And that's where we go for the rock solid things. Why? Because your convictions may be true. They're probably very true to you. You feel strongly about them. They may be actual biblical truths, but we're not fallible. The word of God is infallible. We, we are not infallible. So. We have to admit, if we're honest and humble enough, that our convictions may not actually be true by the Word of God. So we need to listen to others around us, and we need to focus our convictions on those things and make sure we can prefer one another in those times where we think we're right. What's the problem with that? Well, Proverbs 6, I think, gives us some clear uh, warnings. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among believers. One who sows discord. Paul gave Titus a few more instructions over in Titus 3.10 along these lines, and he says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now, there is grace in there. It was twice, right? But we need to take that warning carefully so you get the picture, okay? We need to be careful about our opinions. 
And you know, look, friends, um, there are a lot of opinions in the world. Now, I think more than ever before, you can blame the 24-hour news networks, uh, the social media, or the socials, as Pastor Bill uses that a lot. Blame the socials. But I think you can just blame our own sinful nature, right? We're a people with sin, and we have pride, and proud people like to be right, don't they? So I want to look at some convictions outside the church, okay, outside the church that are dividing Americans, our brothers and sisters in our country. Now, I got this from Pastor John Benzinger. Uh, Pastor John uh, does the Redeeming Truth uh, podcast I listen to every week. And this was back on January 31st. And I want to read it. These are his quotes, so you don't say I cherry-picked anything, okay, about what he says divides those outside the church. Listen to this list. Global warming. Russia versus Ukraine, Hamas versus Israel, January the 6th, COVID and vaccines, COVID and masks, George Floyd, Trump versus Biden, immigration, drag queen story hour. Do we need to go on further? We don't, do we? In the quote for there for a second. But what, what struck me is when he transitioned to talking about the things inside the church that are dividing congregations, denominations, and probably even, even best friends. And his list continues. Classical versus presuppositional apologetics. Biblical counseling versus integration. Pro-life versus abolition. Incrementalism on ending abortion versus immediatism. Churches open or closed. True revival at Asbury or not. Church services on Christmas Day or not. Christian nationalism, female pastors, the chosen, millennial positions, yoga pants and head coverings, worship styles, save America and preach the gospel or just preach the gospel, end of quote. Again, we could add more to that list, but why throw on more pain, right? We need to make sure that we're not sacrificing unity on the altar of personal convictions. Okay, and let's look at the second distractor, dividing over doctrine, dividing over doctrine. And I've heard Christian people mutter, probably without thinking, is we don't need no doctrine. Doctrine just divides. Have you ever heard that? Well, does doctrine divide or does doctrine unite? Did ABF1 talk about doctrine today? Dr. Josh promised the doctor would talk about doctrine. One simple definition of doctrine is this. It's a body of teaching within a belief system. That's all it is. Doctrine or church dogma are the means by which we codify what we believe. Okay? By trying to encompass the full doctrine of eternal and an infant God is no small matter. So we begin to collect these different doctrines, and we, we kind of like try to divide them in tiers or levels of importance. A good bifurcation would be to say, here are the essential doctrines over against the non-essential doctrines. And don't get me wrong, everything about God is important, and everything about God is, is essential. But when we're using those terms and those divisions, it's important we understand what they could mean. And by, by essential doctrines, okay, essential doctrines are what we say, that defines what a Christian is. This is what you must believe in order to be a follower of Christ. The early creeds we have were developed 
really to help people understand what they believe and kind of codify those into something nice and succinct. Many of those concern the Trinity, by the way, and you probably learned as, as a young person the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. Um, some people have rejected creeds altogether and just say, this is my creed, the whole thing. It's like, well, you can't really recite this when somebody said, what do you believe? I mean, it's, yes, it's all in here, but the, the creeds made a nice, succinct way of summarizing what we believe, and that was meant to bring us together and not divide us. The Christian church, universal now, must unite around the core doctrines of our Christian faith. We may differ on some of those doctrines, and, but we don't excommunicate somebody for what is a third tier or a second tier belief. So that goes over to the non-essential doctrines. Again, important, but called non-essential. Here's a good definition. They describe what makes up a denomination, or could, okay? Uh, a dom- denominational dis- distinctives can help us in the local church maintain unity. And also these doctrine, they should never hinder the global mission of the church because we all have the same mission. We can divide those non-essentials further, I said earlier, in the second tier, third tier. I learned there's a quaternary, and I can't even say that, so let's just keep it second tier and third tier. But the divisions get very gray between those two. But it's not gray, it's black and white between what is essential to be a Christian and the other doctrines of God. Now remember, the essentials of the faith define what it means to be Christian. And what what are those? Well, here's, here's my short definition, and I don't make these up. I get these from a lot of theologians. Essential doctrines would include the Trinitarian nature of God, the deity of Christ, the nature of man, the doctrine of sin, justification by faith, the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, the final judgment, and the authority of Scripture. You could summarize first-tier doctrine as those that are non-negotiables, non-negotiables. Now, if you want to think about the second or third tier uh, in the other category, um, you could think about those are the things that help define a denomination like Rocky's doctrine of credo-baptism, okay? That would firmly put us in a baptistic or denomination, right? While our paedo-baptist friends would more gravitate to a Methodist church or Presbyterian church uh, down the road. They'd be more comfortable there. A third-tier doctrine could be things that define us further, even as Baptists, we may have second-tier, third-tier as Southern Baptists, or as Reformed Baptists in that tier. Now, be careful, I will say, using labels, because they are divisive in themselves, or divisive. Is it divisive or divisive? <laughs> Who says Divisive. No hands? Okay, so it must be divisive, right? At least you're unified on that, right? (laughs) Yes, they can can be divisive labels, but they're okay when we're trying to be quick about something. But these denominational distinctives are important because they help us gather to worship so that we have a common philosophy to evangelism, to world missions, to church polity, or whatever. Okay, we're not saying that the Presbyterians down the road or the Methodists on the other side of town are heretical, right? Just because they pour something different in their communion cups once a month or how often they do that. They're not. 
It's, we need to be thankful for those congregations because we're all in the same mission field, reaching the lost. There was a commendable phrase written in a track on unity back in 1627, so that's getting back there. And it was attributed to an otherwise undistinguished German Lutheran theologian, and his name was Rupertus Melendius. And Rupertus, nice name, coined the phrase, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And I think that's a good phrase to remember when we start debating with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, I talk about the combination of those two. Maybe what happens when doctrinal differences and convictions kind of collide? Do they work together? Yeah, and in, in a very nasty way, I'd say. Because when our non-convictions or our convictions elevate the non-essential doctrines to a higher level, we start to form these tribes and groups that share our, con- our convictions. Okay, now this is kind of a hypothetical, but let's say we are, we're constantly being formed by the socials, as Pastor Bill says, and let's say we hear that one of our favorite heroes in our tribe started hanging around with somebody else in another tribe, believing in some other area of, of their conviction that we didn't hold. So what do we do? Draw a line in the sand, we take a vote, we kick them off the island or out of the tribe, right? And then say, it goes on further, and, and we're used to our new smaller tribe now. And then a, another guy in the tribe goes to a conference, and it's reported that somebody else is at the conference that's not in our tribe, and they're speaking on something. Oh boy, draw a line in the sand, take a vote, give them the boot. Cancel culture, meet the evangelical church. And this is not a good thing. This tribalism has to stop because eventually you're going to draw so many lines in the sand and kick so many people out that you're going to be there on an island all by yourself. And nobody is going to get the work done that Jesus left to do. Tribalism has to stop. I want to look at one more hypothetical along these lines, and it's not so hypothetical. Because recently, a mainline and, and very faithful Reformed pastor pastoring over 40 years was called out on the socials for giving unbiblical advice. I'm using the scare quotes if you didn't look. That was their words. There was a concerned grandmother that called in and asked, should I attend the wedding of my granddaughter who is living a lifestyle I don't believe in? Now, most churches, ours included, would not have sanctioned that kind of wedding here. And he didn't either. And he asked the grandmother, he said, does, does the granddaughter understand your convictions about your or beliefs about your lifestyle? Yes. Does she understand that you're not condoning the marriage? Yes. Well, I'd go, he said. And I'd buy her a gift. Well, that drew the ire of a lot of people who held the exact same doctrines on marriage and gender and sexuality as he had. Same doctrines. In fact, they probably don't disagree on anything in the list. The only thing they disagreed with was the application of a certain doctrine. He was approaching it from a pastor's heart, trying to help her to maintain. She wanted to maintain an avenue to continue to speak gospel truth to that girl. 
was the results. His show was canceled on over 140 radio stations by a, a large Christian radio network. Now, I say this only because to let you know that Satan is having a field day with our lack of unity and our willingness to so easily criticize another brother or sister in Christ without looking further into the, to what's really driving that. It needs to stop. I remember the days when R.C. Sproul could meet with the John MacArthur at a conference and both speak on topics polar opposites in many things like baptism or the millennial timing of things. And at the end of the time, shake hands, hug each other, love each other as brothers in the Lord and go on. We'd all do well to remember what Paul wrote to Romans in Romans 12, 9 through 10. He said, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, and this, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. John Wesley and George Whitfield had dynamic ministries around the, second, or the first Great Awakening, yet they were polar opposites in many of the second tier and third tier areas of doctrine. But they had more in common in terms of fulfilling the Great Commission, their love for Jesus, and their love for the lost that kept them moving forward and not criticizing one another. In fact, they held it high honor for the other person. A question was supposedly asked after Wesley died. No, after Whitfield died, Wesley lived about a year longer, not quite. And um, someone came up to him and said, well, Mr. Wesley, do you suppose you'll see old Reverend Whitfield in heaven? And he thought about it briefly and he said, no, don't think so. And they were like, what? He said, he'll be much too close to the throne. I'll be in the back. That is showing honor towards one, one another. And they literally tried to outdo one another in showing honor towards the other preacher because they knew they all had the same mission at hand. Okay, so we can't let our convictions outweigh the Lord's commands and we can't let our doctrinal differences dissolve the relationship we have in, in Christ's church. So I want to look to the third point, the model, the model of our unity. Where do we go for help? This will have a model of, of Jesus and the Father and the Trinity, but also I'm going to go into an example, and that's kind of why we're here today with the deacon ordination. Look at verse 21 uh, and following a few verses. He went on to say that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory which you have given me, I've given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them, even as you loved me. You see the unity in that? All throughout John 17, there was multiple um, uh, verses talking about that intimate relationship between God the Father and God the Son, and by implication, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And I know the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but it's very important to understand this unity, right? So some may wonder, well, how does that reconcile with the early, early teachings of, in, in the Hebrew um, scriptures 
Troy shared last week or two weeks ago the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, which we know very well, um, where, where, a, where Moses wrote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. But the Trinity is not a division. It's not a plurality of gods. It's a very unified description of the one true God. So, in this prayer, Jesus, who was God incarnate, was praying to the Father. And yes, it does all reconcile very nicely, if you understand. Jesus was, was asked about being, well, somebody accused him of being Satan, and he said in Mark 3.25, um, a very familiar um, phrase, a house divided against itself will not be able to stand. There is very strong and there's much strength in unity. Now, I want to touch on the Trinity just, just to help drive this point home. Um, simple definition for some hard concept, one in purpose or essence, but different in persons. One in purpose, but different in persons. This is a little extended quote I want to read from the London Baptist Confession of 1689. Chapter 2, paragraph 3 says, let me read. The divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without the essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning, and therefore only one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctives, distinctive characteristics and personal relations. The truth of the Trinity is foundation of all the fellowship with God and our comforting dependence on Him." End of quote. And similar to that unity in the Godhead, church, this doesn't rob any one of you of your personality or of your distinct, being distinct persons. Something to remember is that while we think of the Trinitarian relationship as being complete, perfectly complete, we know that unity in the church is indeed a work in progress. We just look back any number of stories in the Bible. Uh, we mentioned, Troy mentioned a couple last week, Paul and Barnabas, Peter and Paul later, even the sisters Mary and Martha, they had disagreements. And in all those cases, though, we see God working through the disunity and repairing it and strengthening the church overall. The end result, we see that in Revelation 7, 9, and 10. We even sang a wonderful song about it this morning. Chris, let's bring it back lots. I love it. In Revelation 7, 9, and 10, we read this. John said, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Only through the grace of God will we ever attain that unity because we're diverse people. But diverse is okay. There is diversity in this world if you look around, right? Now, many of us who work for the government, we, we get kind of rammed down diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI. Familiar? Nobody's raising their hand. They don't want to. 
DEI serves a good purpose in many areas, but the secular concept is a far cry from what the diversity we find in the scriptures talk about. DEI in the secular world is designed to give glory to the individuals and equally distribute with the, with the goal of equally distributing the earthly treasures to them. On the other hand, God's diversity is meant to give all the glory and honor to God, and it's for us to lay down all of our treasures at the feet of Jesus. So it's way different than what we're taught. Our diversity in the church is understood by our God, and he uses it uniquely for a certain purpose. He gives us different spiritual gifts, like in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, we see lists of those. God's design was to distribute those gifts around the body, not equally, but in a necessary way such that we would have to work together to get everything done. They were designed to draw us into a better relationship with one another and appreciate one another and the other's gifts all the more. Our deacon body is... And our new deacons that we're going to ordain today are sitting down here. I wanted to look at them and see them. So I said, make them sit down here. Maybe we'll do this every week and put some big chairs up here. for. No, we won't. They're all like, my kids don't like it on the front row. But you guys are a great example of this principle of one body, many gifts. This is why we'll shortly ordain you. And, you know, it's not just because your ministry and the deacon ministry here which we highly value, but it proves this paradigm. It shows us that through diversity, with all of our spiritual gifts, we glorify the one God. Okay, now if they all had the same gifts sitting right up here, we're gonna have trouble getting everything done we need to do, but God orchestrates it in his fashion. Thinking of the deacon ministry, I'm gonna look at Acts 6 very briefly here, one through six. And explain the origins of this a bit. And Mystery Man writes, now in these days, or Luke writes, I'm sorry. Well, I think we wrote, he signed it at the end, Luke, yeah. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching and the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will point to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they had pleased the whole gathering, they chose for them Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And I'm excited about continuing this aspect of the church's important ministry, as we'll see in just a few minutes here. These, there was a lot of great things going on in the church, but divisions started to break up over the, the feeding of the uh, Greek people's wives or, or widows. And the apostles launched this deacon ministry that through this, they could, the solution would be to rebuild unity and take care of the matter. Again, I mentioned before, I, I love the deacon ministry here. Former deacons that are here, um, 
active deacons and the biggest class any of us can remember of you nine guys. We love you. You get a lot of things done, but that's not the reason we love you. We love you because you set the example, the great example for how our church can have unity by leading others in service, not by doing the service, by leading others. Now quickly back to the sermon text, we'll set up for the final approach and the landing. I wanna talk about, we've looked at the importance of unity and distractors to unity, the model for unity, and I wanna take a short look at the purpose of unity. The purpose of unity, we just read John 17, 21 through 23, and there's a couple things that pop out right in here, and one is in verse 21, the second half. So that you may believe, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity within the church is a validation stamp that God sent Jesus to this earth to fix the problem of sin. All right, get this. These these 11 guys, fairly ordinary men, they're about to be scattered. They're about to be left without a leader. And the you know, how God took that and orchestrated that into the mechanism for bringing the the gospel of grace is only by the power of God. Their unity of, of mission and getting together was proof that you had sent, that God had sent Jesus. And the other purpose that, that pops out is in 23b, it says, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them. Our church exists to know God and to make him known. That part is very important because people out there don't believe that anybody loves them, let alone a God who they've sinned against. And our unity can be the great part of bringing that, that, that truth to them and letting it see us in action. Are we unified? No. But who's praying for us? Jesus is, right? He's praying for us that we will be unified. Because that unity, I said already, is a validation that God sent us into this world to bring the hope of the gospel to the lost. There was a modern hymn written back in the 60s, and I probably heard it at some camp or something. And it went like this. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord, and we pray that our unity will one day be restored, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Before we move on towards ordaining these men, which we're excited to do, I want to address one important issue. Does the world know that you are a Christian by your love? When I mentioned earlier that Jesus was praying for those that believed in him, those who would profess faith in him, does the world know that you're one of those people? That's a challenge for us. Does the world believe that Rocky Bay Baptist Church is a group of Christians because we love the world and we love the lost people in the world that we can stand on the truth of God and love the world at the same time? 
Does the, does the Lord, does the world know that? I know there's people sitting in here today that probably can't confirm in their hearts that they're a follower of Jesus, that the world would know they love Jesus, and they may have doubts or have never made a profession of faith. I'm begging you and urging you to consider what Jesus did for you. He died on that cross for us. He was buried, he was resurrected and rose again so that his, that God put on him all the punishment for our sin. And it's not just a guessing game. It's not like, well, salvation will stick on me as long as I stick to Jesus. You know, going to church and doing those kind of things. John wrote in 1 John 5, 13, these words, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know? Do you know with surety that you are saved and that you're a child of God? In the Gospel of John, he wrote this, John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Would you bow with me as we pray? Father, for those here this morning that don't know Jesus today, or or they're not sure that you are their Savior, God, would you speak to their hearts right now, tug on them, show them your mighty love for them, but show them what it cost you to love them. Draw them into the relationship that so many in this room enjoy with you to be able to walk and know that we are children of God. And for others in here, Lord, myself included, who have drawn lines in the sand and voted people off my island because of different convictions, help us, Lord. Help us to to know that there's a future unity that you longed for and that you prayed for and that you want to restore in us. Restore us like you did Peter when he turned his back on you. Help us, God, to be a, a loving family of God, firmly standing on the convictions of your truths. Help us, Lord, today as we ordain these nine men to be servant leaders, to demonstrate, Lord, how you use our diversity, and our many gifts for your one true purpose of saving sinners. So work in us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.